Good morning, church. Please open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. And Happy New Year. And for everybody who can't be here because you're sick, also, uh, we miss you. Happy New Year to, to you. If you're not here because you stayed up too late watching the Twilight Zone marathon, that's a different matter. I did too, and I'm still here. But anyway, um, so <laughs> Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, the title of the sermon is The Forerunner of the Messiah, part 2. And so once you're at Matthew chapter 3, if you are able to stand for, or if you're able to physically stand for the public reading of Scripture, please do. Uh, Matthew, the apostle, writes this. He says, In those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. For he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, who said, A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Now John had a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then people from Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the vicinity of the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who's coming after me is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. This is the word of God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer before we get into it. God, we just come before you this morning. We ask you to be with us as we study your word. I pray, Lord, that you would um, just help me to teach your word right, that you would remove me as much as possible from it. Lord, we pray, God, that uh, you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what is in your word. Um, we pray, Lord, that your word will do what you say it will do, that it will teach us and rebuke us and correct us and train us for righteousness. We pray, Lord, that every single one of us who is called upon your name will be more like Jesus, more conformed to your image because of your word that is preached. And we pray for those who don't know you, that they will come to know you today and be saved. And we just pray all of this, Lord, to your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. Sometimes the most important message that we need to hear is very hard to hear. It's urgent, hard to hear messages. Now, for those who listen to or heed that hard message, it will change their actions. When an urgent message comes and you listen to it, it changes your actions. But for those who ignore the message, it ends up being to their own peril. I remember just over five years ago, we got the news that Bonnie's dad uh, had a really bad stroke and was in the hospital in Oklahoma City. And this was probably going to be it for him. 
And so that was not an easy message to hear. You could go into denial. You could do all sorts of things when it comes to a message like that. But instead, what we did is we quickly packed our stuff. We got in the car. I took off all my remaining work days for the year, and we drove to Oklahoma. And every time we stopped to get gas, my wife would go up to strange strangers, gas station clerks, and ask them to pray for her dad just so that he would be alive long enough for us to get there so that I could preach the gospel to him uh, for one last time. Now, they were born and raised Church of Christ, so they had an understanding of the gospel, but it was works-based. And so I wanted to preach like the true gospel, justification by faith alone, salvation by grace alone. And by God's grace, we made it just in time. Okay, I was able to preach the gospel to him, and he did receive Christ right there. When I asked him if he believed that uh, he was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, that he's justified by faith alone, squeezed my hand, he squeezed it with all of his might. And so praise God for that. A few hours later, he slipped into a coma and never woke up. A month later, um, he passed away. And so I bring this up as an example that we heard a hard message, and we acted on the urgency of that message, and the Lord saved a soul because of it. But sometimes I stop and think, like, what if we had ignored that word? What if we ignored that message? What if we assumed we had more time? What if we even went into denial for a half a day or an extra day? The opportunity would have been missed. We would have been too late. And so the way people respond to important messages matters. It is of great consequence. And I bring this up because there is a hard message that is meant for the whole world. It is the most important message that anyone can hear. It is the bad news that we are all sinners, that God is holy, and a day of judgment is coming. Everyone needs to hear that. Okay. Now, we who are saved, we responded to that urgent message. Because with that message came, with that bad news came the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we believed it and we're saved because of it. But many people don't want to hear this urgent message. They don't want to hear it at all. They don't believe or they fail to see how urgent it really is. And so the reason why I bring that up is the same exact thing was at play in the first century. It's at play in our text this morning. You see, before Jesus could begin his saving work for us, a forerunner had to come first, and that forerunner came with the same urgent message. And that's what our text is all about. And so the point of the text for those who take notes, it's very simple. It's the same as it was last time in part one. John the Baptist is the necessary forerunner of the Messiah. He's the necessary forerunner of the Messiah. And Matthew shows us this in two ways. First, he shows us what John did. And then he shows us what John taught. And when you look at those together, it proves he is that forerunner. Now, last time we looked at what John did and we kind of looked at who he is. And so this morning we will finish by looking at what John taught. Because what he taught was an urgent message that was received by some, but very hard to hear for others. And we're going to see the hard to hear folks this morning. Now, last time, we looked at the first half of the passage, verses 1 through 6. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, which was a barren wasteland just west of the Dead Sea. He came as the foretold forerunner of the Messiah, and I'll say more on that in a minute. But first, let me quickly explain where John the Baptist fits in the Gospel of Matthew. See, this Gospel, as we've been seeing since we began it, is all about showing us that Jesus is the Messiah. He was born in the right time and the right place to the right people, fulfilling all sorts of Old Testament prophecies. He also fulfilled Old Testament people, patterns, and events. 
In other words, major things that happened in redemptive history simply painted a picture of what ultimately would happen in the life of the Messiah. So like Israel, the Messiah would come out of Egypt. Like Israel, he'd go into a temporary exile. Like Israel, he'd return. Like Moses, a tyrant would try to kill him as a baby. Like Moses, he would return after those who wanted him dead were gone. And like Moses, he would bring a new era, a covenant, really, with God, but in this case, a better, a new covenant. So when you look at that all, Jesus fulfills Scripture itself. You look closely, he was born as a descendant of King David through Mary, so he's got David's DNA, okay? And this also makes him a descendant of Abraham, but he also gets the royal line of David through his stepfather, Joseph. And this was prophetically necessary because Jesus is God in the flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the second person of the Trinity, and he added humanity to himself when the Holy Spirit united him with humanity in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And so as such, he's the God-man, and he's born as a man without a sin nature. He was born as a second Adam coming to fix what the first Adam had broke. So with no human father, he inherits no kingly lineage. Because think about it. Kingly lineages are passed from the father. Jesus doesn't have a human father. So even though he's a descendant of David through Mary, he can't have the royal line through Mary. Therefore, he has to get the royal line through the person who does have it, which is his stepfather Joseph, who adopts him. And now the God-man inherits that, that lineage of King David that is necessary for the Messiah. So again, all of this falls into place perfectly. He was born in Bethlehem, just like the prophet Micah said. He grew up in Nazareth, just like the prophets as a whole indicated, that he would seem to come from obscurity. And nowhere's more obscure than Nazareth. He was heralded by a star in the sky, keeping with the prophecy and numbers that was given to Balaam. He was visited by foreign dignitaries, signifying that the one that is born king of the Jews will be worshipped by more than just Jews. Now, all these amazing things were presented to us in just the first two chapters of Matthew. But now that we are in chapter 3, Matthew's ready to bring us into the ministry of Jesus, the ministry of the Messiah. But before he could do that, there's one more prophecy that needs to be fulfilled. Before the Messiah comes, there's supposed to be a final prophet that appears as this forerunner, as this herald that announces the coming of the king. His job is to prepare the way for this by calling Israel to repentance. He is supposed to be a new Elijah coming in the spirit and power of Elijah in order to fulfill the final prophecy that was written in the Old Testament. The last thing God inspired. And there was nothing for 400 years. But the last thing inspired is a guy like this would show up. And that man is John the Baptist. He is the foretold forerunner of the Messiah. He is the one that, <coughs> excuse me, that transitions us from the era of the Old Testament and the prophets to now the New Covenant era and the times of the Messiah. So this John, this Baptist, or John the Baptist, I want you to think he's like a Baptist like today, but this John the Baptist, he's, he's out in the right wilderness at the right time declaring the right message and he's doing the right things. And so what we saw in the first six verses was his main activity was preaching. I know he's called the baptizer, but his main activity was preaching. And what did he preach? He preached that everyone needs to repent, okay? And why must everyone repent? He said, because the kingdom of heaven has arrived. The Messiah is on earth. 
And I know that gets kind of complicated, and so last time I explained the mysterious nature of the kingdom of God, and I don't have time to explain it again. we got plenty to get through, so I would encourage you, if you missed that or need a refresher, to go back to our website and listen to the last sermon. But just to give it short real quick, okay, the kingdom is both here right now, it's already here, but it's not yet here. And I know that sounds like a contradiction, but what I'm saying is some parts of it are here and some parts of it will come later. And I gave us two words to understand that. It was inaugurated with the first coming of Jesus. And so some of the kingdom's here, but it will not be consummated or completed until the second coming of Jesus. That's why sometimes the Bible speaks of it as if it's yet to come. And sometimes the Bible speaks of it as if it's here right now. And so we have to hold that tension. Again, you got to think with, with two hands. So John shows up as the forerunner announcing the kingdom. And Matthew told us that this fulfills Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Matthew also shows us that John fulfills Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. He is the Elijah to come. John dressed like Elijah. That's the point of the camel hair cloak and the leather belt. John came to turn Israel's heart back to God. And he did so by bringing a ministry of baptism where Israel was being called to start all over. They were being asked to forget for a moment that they were members of the Old Covenant and they were being asked to pass through the Jordan rivers again or the Jordan River waters again like they did when they first came into Israel, okay, when they first inherited the land. It's a call to start over. And that's what we saw last time. And so that catches us up with verses 1 through 6. So now we can look at verses 7 through 12. I mentioned that Matthew shows us that John is the forerunner of the Messiah in two ways. First, what John did, and second, what he taught, okay? We will see what, in what he taught that he indeed is a prophet. When you pay attention to what John says here, it's exactly like what you find in the Old Testament prophets. He does two things. Pretty much, he's urgently going to call them to repent because God's wrath is coming, and then he's going to delightfully and gladly prepare them for the work and coming of the Messiah. And in a nutshell, that's what every Old Testament prophet does. So let's look at the text to see this. Let's look at the first part of verse 7. Matthew writes this. It says, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, I'm going to just stop there for a moment. This is shifting the scene, right? What we saw right before this is multitudes of Jews from Jerusalem, Judea, and the Jordan vicinity or, or that wilderness. They were coming out to John and obediently confessing their sins and being baptized, right? That's great. But now Matthew is shifting our attention to a group that is distinct from the multitudes. He moves our attention to the religious leaders of Israel. And with no other information, if we just stopped right now and speculated... It might look like they're showing up to get baptized. It says they were coming to his baptism, okay? But what John says to them makes that very unlikely. And even apart from what Matthew shows us that John says to them, there's other indications they were not there to get baptized. The Gospel of John makes it clear that they were there to check this guy out. They were investigating. John chapter 1, verse 22 says, Who are you then, they asked. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? So they've been sent to bring a report back to even their higher-ups in Jerusalem. So they're investigating John the Baptist to make that report. Now, in the next few verses, they ask him, are you the Messiah? He's like, nope. They're like, well, are you Elijah? And since he's literally not Elijah, he says, no. And then they say, well, are you the, the prophet to come that Moses talked about? 
who's also the Messiah? And John says, no. And so in answer, in response to that, they then really like, you know, hound him a couple verses later. John chapter 1, verses 24, 25 says, now they've been sent from the Pharisees. So they asked him, why then do you baptize if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? In other words, who in the world are you out here? What authority do you have to bring all these people and tell them we got to start all over if you're not the Messiah, if you're not Elijah? Okay, so my point with all that is they're not there to get baptized. Instead, they are sent by the religious leaders of Jerusalem to investigate and really, it seems obvious, to to oppose him. And the fact that Matthew tells us that it was both the Pharisees and the Sadducees that came to John, that shows us how big of a deal this is. Why? Well, I think it would benefit us to know a little bit about these guys. You hear about Pharisees and Sadducees all the time, but this is the first time either of them are ever mentioned in the Bible. You read the whole Old Testament, two-thirds of the Bible, you never hear them. You open up the New Testament, you get to the third chapter, here these guys are. Where'd they come from? Who are they? Okay, And they're going to be mentioned all throughout the Gospels and the book of Acts, and even Paul mentions Pharisees sometimes in his letters. Okay, So who are these guys? I'm going to give you a quick history lesson so we understand. Since they're not in the Old Testament, but they're already a fact of life in the New Testament, that means they emerge sometime in between, in the intertestamental period, okay? During the 400 years of silence after Malachi, but before Jesus was in the womb of Mary. So how this happened? Well, look, with no more prophets, with God being done talking with Malachi, okay, the Jews then collected the scriptures they had, they studied them, and they tried to systematize their theology. That's what we do right? They did the same thing. They started putting together two aspects of their theology. One was called like the rules and the rituals that every good Jew is supposed to do. That's called halakha, which comes from the Hebrew word walk. You know, we're supposed to walk a certain way, okay? So they would study and say, according to the Bible, we're supposed to follow these rules, this halakha. But then when it came to the doctrine, like what do we believe about God? What do we believe about, you know, various doctrines and ethics? That's called Haggadah. So they created Halakha, rituals, and Haggadah, their doctrine, okay? And they did this out of a desire to be faithful to the Bible. So they study and study. But what happens when, that, when people do that? There will be disagreements. And so different parties or denominations will form because they're going to disagree on some important points, The Pharisees and the Sadducees were two of the very dominant parties back then, and they were opposite to each other. And what's really interesting is they all started out as one group, okay? Back in the 160s BC, a little more history lesson, the Greeks took over Israel and they tried to eradicate the Jews and Jerusalem. This is something that seems to happen a lot in history. So they stopped their ability to worship God in the temple. In fact, they invaded the temple. They put an altar of Zeus in the Holy of Holies and sacrificed a pig to it. Then the Greeks went all over Israel, forcing all Jews they could find to sacrifice a pig to Zeus. They'd carry an idol with them. And if they refused, they'd be killed. If they found any mother having a child circumcised, they'd kill the mother and the child right there on the spot. If you were found with a scroll of any biblical book, you would be killed right there on the spot. And this went on for three years and about two months. A lot of Jews were hiding in caves just trying to survive, trying to preserve their word. So there was a group of faithful believers called the Hasidim, okay? And they were opposing these Greek tyrants. They were faithful to what the word of God taught. And eventually you have a rebellion that springs from them that later was called the Maccabee Rebellion. And 
by all. It's a miracle when you read it. This small, ragtag group of Jews was able to beat a much superior force again and again and again. And they liberated Israel. They liberated the temple. And they pushed the Greeks out of Israel. And by the way, that's what the celebration of Hanukkah is all about. It commemorates that miracle. Okay, So after the Greeks are gone, now the Jews have to figure out, okay, they're gone. We need to start worshiping God faithfully again. So this Hasidim, these faithful ones, are trying to restore true worship of God to Israel. But then they start disagreeing with each other and split into multiple groups. One group supported the corrupt high priest that the Greeks put in power. That group became the Sadducees. Okay? That's where they came from. Okay? They, they just supported the status quo and the corrupt leaders that were there. The other group broke away and said, we're not going to support this corrupt high priest. But that group that broke away split into two other groups, the Pharisees and the Essenes. The difference, the Pharisees said, you know what, the best way we could serve God is by teaching the people. You know, you might have a corrupt priest, but that's in Jerusalem. Every day people are living in their towns, so let's build synagogues in their towns. Let's be their teachers. Let's teach them the law. Let's teach them the prophets. And so that's what they did. Now, the Essenes, you don't hear much about them because they rejected society. They're like, all right, all these other Israelites are going to hell. We're just going to go to the Dead Sea, form a little community, and they're the ones who gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls. They didn't really impact anyone, though, because they rejected everyone. So really, you have the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They're the two parties that are making an impact, and the Pharisees made the bigger impact since they were the ones teaching the people. So these two groups are rivals. Now, what did they believe? The Sadducees were, you could kind of say they were like theological liberals. And they kissed up to the Roman Empire at this time. They favored the status quo because the status quo made them rich. They didn't care about a Messiah. They didn't care about, you know, Jewish purity. They just liked things the way they were. And they included that corrupt priesthood. The Pharisees, in contrast, they were the conservatives. They believed in things like predestination, the resurrection, afterlife, and angels. The Sadducees rejected these. And you may have heard the joke, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see. And if that helps you remember, it's stupid, but if it helps you remember that, yes, they rejected, they rejected um, angels, they rejected Messiah, they rejected the perfect age to come, and afterlife, all that kind of stuff. Okay? The Pharisees believed that the entire Old Testament came from God, and so they taught it. The Sadducees said, we're only going to do what's in the first five books, Okay, so very different groups. And I'm going to say this because you don't hear this enough, but in terms of doctrine, the Pharisees were the good guys. Even as a Christian, Paul calls himself a Pharisee near the end of his life. In Acts chapter 23, verse 6, he does not say, I was a Pharisee. He says, I am a Pharisee and a son of Pharisees. So Phariseeism is not intrinsically bad, but a lot of Pharisees did lose their way. Okay? Where many Pharisees went wrong is they set up a lot of extra-biblical rules for purity, and then they started judging others for how well they kept these man-made rules. And what made this worse, I mean, that in and of itself is bad, but a lot of Christians do that too, right? What makes the Pharisees, I think, go over the edge in a bad way is because they gained more influence over their society, they now became the more powerful group. They had power, they had influence, and because of that, they had respect, they had wealth. And what happens is, and we see this in church history as well, when religious groups gain social and political power, they tend to be, they become cold and calculating, and they seek to maintain their position. And that's what happened to the Pharisees. High status corrupted them. And ironically, 
This is the, 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 the irony, the crazy thing. John the Baptist's theology is the same as theirs. They should be out there clapping for him. But because he's not coming from their own ranks, they have to reject him. It's about power. And that's what's silly about them, okay? So anyway, all that tells you who the Pharisees and Sadducees are. It tells you where they come from. And by the time Christ was born, they were the two main religious parties. There were other ones, but they're small. Now, the fact that Matthew says they came together here is a really big deal. See, the Greek implies they came as one group, which is rare, okay? Usually, it would say the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But there's only one the, the Pharisees and Sadducees. And in Greek, that's a way of telling you they're one group at this point. These two enemies, who are never one group, are showing up as a single group. These guys who can't stand each other are coming out in unity to check out John. Why? It's because of how big of an impact he's having. If nobody was going to get baptized, they wouldn't care. But it's multitudes Okay, multitudes upon multitudes were coming to him. They were confessing their sin. They were accepting the authority of his baptism. They were gladly proclaiming that this is the prophet who prepares the way of the Lord. Now, if these religious leaders really loved God, you would think that they would, they would uh, rejoice. Like, look at all these multitudes. Look at these multitudes coming to God. But they don't rejoice. Instead, they just see John as a threat. Okay? And so it's amazing how two groups with divergent doctrines can come together against what's perceived as a common threat. And the tragedy is, what is the common threat? God's actual prophet. That's just sad. God's actual prophet is the common threat that they're worried about. And when John's ministry ends and they're done opposing him because he's dead, they take that opposition against who? The one he pointed to, Jesus, the Messiah. This is one of the most tragic things that happens to people. People who love the word of God in some way, they become so stiff in their traditions that they fail to recognize when God actually speaks. And listen, the same things happen throughout history. And no, I'm not talking about charismatic stuff. I don't think God is speaking there. What I'm talking about is during the Reformation, God was speaking through the expositional preaching of the Reformers, but the Catholics wouldn't hear it because it went against their tradition. And even today, right now, God speaks through the faithful expositional preaching of faithful churches, and yet there's legalists who won't listen to it. Well, are they using the King James only? Oh, then they got nothing good to say. Or do their women all wear skirts? Oh, they got nothing good to say, because they make up these foolish rules. And because of that, they won't listen to the word. And then you got the, the lawless phonies out there who just want to be encouraged, but they don't want to be held accountable. So to them, good preaching is Joel Osteen. That's not John the Baptist preaching. Okay, so my point is, same thing today. The word of God gets proclaimed, but people, because of whatever reason, hardness of heart, they might claim they love the word, but they won't actually listen to the word. Now, anyway, all that I know is is a lot to take in on just the words Pharisees and Sadducees, but I wanted us to know who these guys are going forward and why John responds to them like he does. If you don't know all that, It might seem like he's kind of rude with his first words. They show up and he's just like, you know, right on them, okay? But the reason he's going to talk to them the way he is is because he knows they're out there to investigate him as a threat to their own status. And so let's look at what he says. The rest of verse 7 says this. Um, This is the most gentle way to correct someone. He says, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Yeah, he's a prophet. So here's the thing. 
Without the context, that seems pretty harsh, doesn't it? Those are fighting words for sure. I mean, the word brood of vipers, translated offspring of vipers, is a pretty big claim he's making. He's saying to the whole audience and to these guys that these people that you all think are holy, they got no character. They're snakes. They're serpents. And what makes it worse is it was believed in that time that vipers ate their own moms after they were, after they were hatched. And so pretty much these are like the worst of the snakes. So his first words here are telling the crowds that these men that you all look up to, that you think are holy, are actually the opposite. They got no integrity. And of course, if you think about it, these two groups with this religious power, they're the ones who like, are on the top of society. Nobody talks to them this way. People sometimes would look down when they're coming by. And yet here's this guy in camel hair, you know, biting some locust jerky, calling them out. Calling them out. They're not used to being talked to like this. John then asks them, he says, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Now, it's hard to know what he's emphasizing here. Is he emphasizing the word who? It'd be like, who told you to flee? In other words, I didn't invite you. I don't know you guys. Who told you to come here? That's one thing. He's like, I'm not going to baptize you guys. Your faith's not genuine. Or he might be emphasizing the word you. Like, who warned you? to flee. You guys aren't going to listen. You, you guys are a brood of vipers. Who, who would warn you? Either way, these words are very picturesque. He calls them vipers, and then he talks about them fleeing from wrath, which paints a common picture in that very desert. Whenever there would be a brush fire in the wilderness, you'd see groups of snakes slithering in absolute fear and panic away from the fire. It would be a very pathetic sight to see. And John's saying, that's these guys. These guys that you look up to, picture those scared little snakes just slithering away from a fire. That's them, okay? So I think for sure people would rightly say that John lacks diplomacy here, but he does make up for it in, with urgency. He makes up for it by painting the right picture of imminent wrath. If the Messiah is here, then that means wrath for those who reject him. And at the end of the day, Everything John is saying is just like what the prophets would say. When the prophets were writing to the power brokers of their time, they talked to them the exact same way. The leaders always, in all of Israel's history, always looked down on the people of the land, always looked down on the crowds as the uneducated Am Haaretz. You're just the Am Haaretz, the, the foolish people of the land. You don't know your left hand from your right. Yet it was the Am Haaretz that humbled themselves before God. And received this baptism. The so-called holy men of this society were anything but humble before God. And so the prophet must confront them like the prophets of old. And the way they would do it is God's trial lawyer with God's word telling them you need to repent. Okay? And so John's language here, you can find it multiple times in the Old Testament prophets. Now what, what is interesting is even though he called them out as hypocrites, he still offers them a way to escape the judgment to come. Look at verse 8. John says, therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. Now, again, what's the first word there? It's therefore, and I know this is corny, but when you see therefore, you ask, what is the therefore, therefore? In other words, the word therefore always is an inference of what was just said. It points back to what was just said. Something was said, and in light of that, therefore, you're now supposed to do something. So what was just said? You guys are broods of vipers. Wrath is coming for you. Therefore, in light of that, repent. 
You're not the holy man you think you are, so repent. In light of who you really are right now, stop deceiving yourselves and repent. Turn away from your wickedness. Now, John says it even better than that. Rather than just telling them to repent, he told them to produce the fruit consistent with repentance. Or you could translate it as uh, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. See, real repentance produces real fruit. If someone tells you they've repented and it's in their heart, but there's no fruit, they have not repented. Let me ask you a simple question that we all could relate with. If you have an apple tree in your backyard, how do you know it's an apple tree? What must it produce? Apples. If it doesn't produce apples, then you have every reason to doubt that it's an apple tree. So how do you know somebody is a repentance tree? Or how do you know somebody's repented? There's going to be fruit. There's going to be evidence of that repentance. Now, remember how I defined repentance last time. I gave a biblical summary of what the word means. Okay, it is to stop the rebellion against God and to turn around and to come to God in faith. It requires that you change your mind or your thinking about your sin and you agree with God. God says it's sin and you're like, you know what? God is right. And you agree with God that it deserves hell. It's sin. It deserves hell. I agree with you, God. I have changed my thinking. I see it like you see it, God, right? And if you see it like God sees it in your mind, then in your heart, emotionally, you're going to start to hate the sin because you can't love something that you now agree with God is wicked and deserves hell. And so with your mind against the sin, with your heart against the sin, then your action is possible for you to stop the sin. But stopping the sin is not enough. If you think repentance is only stopping, no, the Bible again and again shows us repentance is complete when you put on the righteous opposite. So not only do you stop the sin, but you put on the righteous opposite. Now, as I said last week, this will have a different emphasis for unbelievers than it will for believers. And I explained that. For the unbeliever, commanding them to repent is a call for them to stop being an unbeliever. Okay? How do you repent of being an unbeliever? By becoming a believer. Stop your unbelief. Believe. Turn away from your false worship of yourself or other gods and worship the one true God alone. And turn away from your sins. Okay, believe in him. Believe in his promises. That's how the unbeliever repents. Now, for the believer, you've already done that. You're saved. So repentance has a different emphasis for you. Even though you've turned away from sin in general, and even though you've turned to God, you still struggle with individual sins that kind of knock you off course, that ensnare you a little bit. And so what you are commanded to do, how you repent, is what Ephesians 4 says. You put off the sin, you renew your mind with Scripture, particularly about that sin, and at the same time, you put on the righteous opposite. And then what will happen is in a short amount of time, you will be past that sin. You will have repented of it. And that's going to be our modus operandi for the rest of our life as believers. Now, again, two different emphases. Whether you're talking about an unbeliever repenting or a believer repenting, in both cases, there's going to be fruit. There will be evidence. There will be a byproduct of that changed mind, changed heart, and changed action. So what are some examples then of what the fruit of repentance would look like? Well, since John the Baptist is saying it, I think it would be best for us to let John the Baptist tell us what he means, and then maybe we could add a little bit to it. In Luke's gospel, the people respond to this. So even though he's saying this to the leaders, the people respond to the command to produce fruit worthy of repentance. And so they ask, well, 
Well, what does that mean for us? What, what should we do? And to that, he answers the following in Luke chapter 3, verses 11 through 14. He replied to them, The one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none, and the one who has food must do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? He told them, Don't collect any more than what you've been authorized. Some soldiers also questioned him, What should we do? He said to them, Don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation, and be satisfied with your wages. Okay? Now what's sad is he gave this warning to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're unmoved. They're not saying anything. But the crowds who were there, hearing him say this to the Pharisees and Sadducees, they have the right heart, and they're just worried, like, well, what about us? I'm sure we need to repent, okay? How can we produce the fruit of repentance? And the evidence of that, if you do, is that you will share with those less needy. That proves you're not greedy and in love with treasure on earth. It proves that you love your neighbor as you love yourself, which obeys the second table of the law of God's commandments, the fifth through the tenth commandments, okay? If you have authority over people, like tax collectors or soldiers, don't abuse that authority. Be content with your wages and discharge your duty with honesty. Don't shake people down for more money. And so that's what he's telling them because those are the sins of their society that they were struggling with. But of course, I believe we could add to that list. So in our day, what's some of the things we're dealing with? Well, if you're unfaithful to your spouse, stop. Love the one that God gave you. Love the companion of your youth and love that person to the exclusion of all others. If you're a slanderer, stop using your mouth to destroy people. Use your mouth to teach them the word of God and to build them up. And for the Pharisees and Sadducees there, and by extension, any Christian who sees themselves as superior because they know the word of God, and so they look at the unbelievers of the world as the Amha Aretz, just the, the, the filthy people of the land, or even new believers as just, ah, they're so immature. If that's you, you got the same heart as the Pharisees and Sadducees. So for these folks, humble yourself in the sight of your God. Because that is what you need in that case. Let God's word increasingly show you how bad you really are. How much you really need God's grace. Then go and be merciful to others as God has been merciful to you. And be patient with others as God has been patient with you. And do not add to his laws with your own. Just simply follow what he's commanded us to do and teach others to do the same. And encourage them to do the same. Those kinds of things are the evidence of repentance, okay? If repentance was a tree, then all those things would be the fruit, okay? Now, the fruit is not repentance itself. It's the byproduct of it. Just like individual apples are not the apple tree, they're part of it, but they're not the apple tree itself. The tree produces the fruit. Same thing, the repentant heart produces the fruit of repentance. It's what proves that repentance is really there. If there is no fruit, you cannot say the repentance is there. Now, loved ones, John the Baptist's words are just as relevant for us as it was for that original Jewish audience. See, they were in covenant with God, but the comfort of this life made them complacent. It just did. And it made their hearts grow cold toward those outside of God's covenant. It made their hearts become comfortable with ritual. Meaning, they would go through the motions of worship and through the motions of obedience, but their hearts were far from God. And that is not something that was only a problem back then. 
You can't tell me that millions of Christians today are not in the exact same place. And you can't tell me that maybe even some of us here today are not in that same place. And so John's warning still rings true, okay? And I would say it even rings more true for us because we're part of God's new covenant, which is enacted on better promises. We have more revelation from God. We have more of the Holy Spirit. We have Christ. And yet, how many of us are equally complacent? How many of us have extra resources to share, but we refuse to give our second shirt to the one who has none? And we'll make all sorts of rationalizations for it. How many of us are absolutely cold to those who aren't saved? Those who are outside of the covenant? And listen, not telling them about Jesus is the surest proof of a heart that's gone cold. And I know that sounds harsh because it might be because of fear. We might be afraid to speak. It's not because we, we hate them. We're just afraid to speak. But that means we value our comfort above their souls. That is still a cold heart. We find it more reasonable to never challenge our fear than to try to spare someone from eternal judgment. And that's not right. That is a heart that is right now cold to those who are outside of the covenant. When it comes to worship, how many of us go through the motions in worship? How many of us sing without reflecting upon the words and meaning them? Or how many don't sing at all during corporate worship? How many of us pray as if it's a chore rather than a privilege? How many of us tithe grudgingly? How many of us see Sunday morning as nothing more than an item to check off the list? And if we've hit like seven out of ten Sundays, let's go have fun for the next three. How many do that? Because that's not right. How many of us here will listen to sermon after sermon, week after week, but every time we walk away unchanged? And what does the Bible say about not being hearers only? Once we hear something, we're responsible for it. And we're supposed to immediately become doers. Now listen, I say all of this not to beat us up, okay? I say it because I believe if John the Baptist were here right now in his camel cloak with locusts in his pocket... He would be calling on all of us to make sure that we are producing fruit worthy in keeping with repentance. And for what it's worth, I do believe that we would respond like the crowds rather than the Pharisees. There might be some who would have a Pharisee and Sadducee attitude, but I, I think most of us would be like the crowds. We'd genuinely ask, John, hey, what should we do? We would ask, what would this look like for us? But in their day, sadly, the Pharisees and Sadducees did not respond like this. And there are many self-proclaimed Christians and pastors, um, stuffy, cold-hearted theologians that I see on Twitter. I know I bring it up. You guys are probably thinking, when's he going to get off? He's, he's apparently just going crazy. There's, there's some redeemable things up there. But, but what I see up there is a lot of Reformed guys, Reformed pastors who talk to people like they're the pathetic people of the land, that they're life unworthy of life. They're sarcastic to them. They're mean to them. It's just, it's foolish. They're like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And I think about that because we're Reformed, okay? And Reformed theology should make people the most humble of Christians, not the most arrogant of Christians, not the most proud, but that's not what I see. Right? So I could picture John the Baptist having a field day with a lot of people in our day who think they're doing things right, just like the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, what's interesting is God, and it makes sense because John is a prophet, but God must have revealed to him what was in what the Pharisees and Sadducees were thinking, what was in their heart, because his next response only makes sense if he knows what they're thinking. 
okay? They would have thought that his baptism was presumptuous. They would think, we are the descendants of Abraham. God chose our nation long ago. God adopted us during the Exodus and called Israel his firstborn. Our ancestors were sprinkled with the blood of the covenant. And henceforth, we've had the temple in Jerusalem. We don't need to come to God as if we're Gentiles. We don't need to be immersed again in the Jordan River. Again, we're the children of Abraham, for goodness sakes. John the Baptist has lost his mind. He's gone mad. So, in verse 9, he jumps in front of their potential comeback, and he says this. He says, And don't presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. Now, this is fascinating. I know I always say things are fascinating. It just is. It's the word of God. Now, this is something Jesus is going to face as well. So let me just get that out of the way. When he's telling the Jewish leaders in John chapter 8 that they need to be set free from sin, this is their dumb response. John 8, 39, our father's Abraham. They replied, if you were Abraham's children, Jesus told them, you would do what Abraham did. You know, which is exactly what needed to be said to them. Jesus's point was similar to John's. You need to live consistent with the faith of Abraham. That's what matters. Being a physical descendant does you no good if you are living in rebellion to God. And one thing that absolutely baffles me is the Jewish leaders should have known this. They should have readily agreed with this. They're the teachers of the people of Israel. How many of you have read the Old Testament before? Okay, good. At first, like, no hands went up. I'm like, oh, no. Um, When you read the Old Testament, it's very clear. Many times God judges Israel and destroys them for rebellion, and he saves a remnant that repents. So there's always an Israel before him, but he'll destroy the ones who don't repent, and they're descendants of Abraham. So these guys should know that. Why would anybody in Israel make this defense? And yet apparently it must have been a popular one because they do it to John, and they make the same defense to, to Jesus. Makes no, no sense. But getting back to John's point, I love his statement about these stones for three reasons. Now, how many of you, when when you read this and you read it quickly, you simply take it as John saying, well, God can make new people out of stones. Like, you think that's what he's saying, right? Well, he he can just make new people out of these stones right here. And, And so your ancestry doesn't matter. Well, of course God can do that, but that's not John's point. I want you to ask yourself, first off, notice, does he say God could take the, make people out of stones or the stones, or does he say these stones? It's very specific stones. So let me ask you something. Where are they? Physically, geographically, they are in the Jordan River area. Where did Israel first cross into the promised land 1,400 years earlier? The Jordan River. And what did God command Israel to do through their leader, Joshua? When the water was dried up so they could cross on dry ground, God said, you grab 12 stones from the bottom of that river. Take it outside and build a monument so that your people will know henceforth that God delivered his people as and gave all the promises to them. These 12 stones represent God's complete people, the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay? And so they did it. And those 12 stones were supposed to be there for future generations. It's quite possible that they were still right there. And John could have said, these stones, 
And that's my guess of what's happening. But even if those stones were moved, every Jew still knew what, the, what stones he was talking about. They knew where they were. So even if he said these stones, they would be thinking about the stones of the Jordan. They all know the history. These are not just random stones he's talking about. He's talking about the 12 stones representative of Israel crossing through the Jordan River when God delivered them with a mighty hand. So what John is saying is that in the same way God raised up the 12 tribes as they crossed through the Jordan, he could do it again. He's saying, here we are in the same area, and multitudes of Israelites are humbling themselves as if they're coming to God again for the first time. They are coming anew, and they are doing so because they anticipate things will be new and different in the days of the Messiah. And John is announcing those days. That's why they're coming. And so even if the leaders who think they represent the 12 tribes, even if they reject this, God can make a renewed Israel from the Jews who humble themselves before God. He will do it from the, for, he'll do it from the Jews that, that listen to the Elijah to come. He will do it from the Jews that follow the Messiah. And in fact, God does that very thing. I want you to think with me for a moment. Do you think it's an accident that our Lord Jesus chose 12 apostles? Is that just for no reason? I like the number 12. No, no. And when Judas disappeared as an apostle because he was a false one, they had to replace him. There had to be 12, okay? It has everything to do with the renewing and reconstitution of Israel, just as John the Baptist said. Did not Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, tell the 12 apostles that at the time in the future, in the resurrection, that they will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel? Now, it's amazing how Christians ignore that passage. How could there be a future where, like, the apostles have a distinct role in ruling ethnic Israel? They do. We just got to get on with it, right? Now, also, did not Jesus, in the parable of the vineyard, in Matthew 21, 43, tell the Jewish leaders that the kingdom will be taken from them and it will be given to those producing fruit? That was not a statement that is being taken from from the Jews and given to the Gentiles. That's how it's been read throughout all of history, and you go and read it closely. That is not even close to what it's saying. It's a statement that it's going to be taken from the current leaders, those to whom the vineyard was leased. It'll be taken from the current leaders, and it will be given to the 12 apostles who will lead a reconstituted Israel. Now, that reconstituted Israel is made up of the 12 apostles, the remnant of Jews that believe in Jesus, and then all the Gentiles who are added to them as co-heirs because they believe in Jesus, okay? That is the reconstituted Israel. Now, the reason I'm saying all of this is people wrongly say here that with the stones, John was promising that God would make children for Abraham out of the Gentiles here. Even though that happens spiritually, you know, the Bible says if you're a Gentile and you believe in Jesus, you're a spiritual descendant of Abraham. That is not what John's talking about. He's talking to physical Israel about physical descendants here, right? He was sent as the prophet to Israel to turn fathers and sons back to God in repentance. And what John is saying is that God will rebuild Israel from the ground up with 12 new leaders of 12 tribes. God doesn't need Pharisees and Sadducees or the high priest. He doesn't need any established leadership or their claims that they're owed something. He doesn't need them to do this, right? And that's just the first thing that's happening with these stones. I said there's three. So there's more. Remember, what prophet is John like? Elijah, right? He's coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. When Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal or Baal in 1 Kings 18, 
He also was the representative prophet of the true people of God, the remnant of believing Israelites. And there, look what he does. 1 Kings 18.31, Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel will be your name. So Elijah builds the same kind of monument, okay? Well, John, like Elijah, represents the remnant of Jews that are truly following God. In Elijah's day, the majority fell away and they worshiped the Baals. So Elijah confronted the people. He challenged the false prophets and he set up a monument just like the one God told Joshua to set up that represents the people of Israel. Okay? God then sent fire down from heaven and proved to everyone that Elijah was his prophet. And so then many Israelites did turn back to God that day. The multitudes flocking out to John are doing the exact same thing. The thousands that James will point to, James the brother of the Lord in Acts 21, says, look at these thousands of Jews zealous for the law who believe in Jesus. They also did the same. Okay? So John and Elijah are both pointing to 12 stones as the idea, again, that God will reconstitute a new, better, faithful Israel out of a remnant. And then later it'll tell us they're going to add Gentiles to that remnant as well. So the Elijah connection is the second thing that's happening. So these stones in the Jordan area brings us back to Joshua and then brings us back to Elijah. And then the third thing happening here is just a clever wordplay. John likely spoke to them in Hebrew And some will say in Aramaic, and it would still even work in Aramaic, but I'm going to go with the Hebrew option. The word for son in Hebrew is ben. The word for stone is eben. Okay, ben, eben. So John is saying, you say you're ben Abraham, but God can make ben Abraham from these eben. Okay, or in the plural, you are the banim of Abraham. Well, God can make children for Abraham from these ebenim. Okay, And so if he said that in Hebrew in that time, there would have been a chuckle from the crowds, like, that's a good one, John. And then, of course, the Pharisees would be like, you know, all stuffy and mad. And so there's just so much to to these stones. It's, you know, packed with historical, theological meaning, even a little pun. And so in summary with that, John appealing to the stones in the Jordan River area harkens back to God's initial salvation of Abraham's descendants Israel at the end of the Exodus when he brings them into the land. That's the big picture. It then zooms in like a microscope to Elijah where God now sees true Israel as his remnant. In both cases, 12 stones for the 12 tribes. And then this statement with John zooms in even more to his generation, the generation of the Messiah and the narrowing of true Israel down even more. It comes down to this. Who will repent? Who will humble himself? Who will listen to God's prophet? Who will then follow the Messiah that comes after? Okay, that then leads us to verse 10, where John closes this rebuke of the religious leaders with one more warning. You can hear the urgency in the warning. John says this. He says, the axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Okay? So when he says the axe is already at the root of the trees, that is in the present tense and active voice. And all that means is it paints the picture that the axe has already been chipping away. It's been chipping away for some time at that trunk to where now there's only the nubbings left. One swing is all that's left. One last swing will come and this whole thing comes down. That's what he's saying. In other words, this is your last chance. When that swing comes, it's too late. 
So produce good fruit, otherwise you will be thrown in the fire. That is what he's saying. If you do not produce good fruit, you will be thrown in the fire. And what he means by the fire will be very clear when we get to verse 12. Okay? Now, some of you might be like, well, wait a minute. He's saying if you don't do these good works, you're going to hell? Yes. Well, does that mean you're saved by good works? No. He's not saying you're saved by good works. Okay? What he's saying is that those who are saved are those who, because of their salvation, produce fruit. If you're saved, you will produce fruit. If no fruit's being produced, it means there's no root there. You haven't been saved. It's not the fruit that saves you. The fruit just proves that you've been saved. That's what he's getting at here. In chapter 7, Jesus will say good trees bear good fruit. So you have to be a good tree first, right? You have to be saved first. Then you could bear good fruit. And, and the fruit's the evidence. So no, you're saved by faith, not by works. You know, Calvin said it well when he said we're saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. It produces the, the good fruit. And so John's point here is just that. He's saying you need to repent and believe. And then you need to bear the fruit of that repentance and faith. Then, and only then, will you be immune from the judgment to come. But time is running out. So repent and believe right now. Now, the crowds clearly listened to the warning, but most of the leaders did not. So then the text ends with John setting the stage for the ministry of Jesus. Verse 11 is, is very interesting. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, this is pretty simple. First, what he is saying is he's saying, look, my baptism is temporary. It's something that's only happening right now. Somebody's coming after. It's going to be a different baptism. Okay, what I'm doing right now, this is a baptism of repentance for Israel only so that they will be ready to receive the Messiah. And, and I think it's, it's very important for us to note that Christian baptism is not the same as John the Baptist baptism. If somebody got baptized today in our little baptismal back here, it is not the same thing as what John was doing in the Jordan River, okay? If you got baptized today and a friend asked you, what does that baptism even mean? You would say this. You would say, I identified myself with Jesus the Messiah who died for my sins and rose from the dead on the third day. So I was immersed or submerged underwater because that's what the word baptism means. It means to be immersed, okay? So I was immersed under the water, which symbolized me being buried. The old me's dead. The sinner is gone. The me coming out of the water signifies my new life, just as Christ came out of the tomb alive. So I'm a new creature. That's the first thing my baptism means. The second thing it means is the water also... Uh, uh, represents the forgiveness of sins. It paints the picture of me being cleansed of all my filth, okay? And then the third thing my baptism pictures is being immersed in the Holy Spirit himself because the Old Testament prophets promised that God would pour out the Holy Spirit. What kind of language is pour? It's water language. He will pour out the Holy Spirit on his people in the end times and drench us in the Spirit of God. The Spirit will be in us and on us and with us. That is all what Christian baptism means. John's baptism doesn't mean any of that. It can't, okay? John's baptism paves the way for that. John's baptism is just Israel admitting they need to be reconstituted as God's covenant people because of centuries of sin, okay? So they need to repent and begin anew. And now that many of them have done that through John, it's time for the Messiah to come and bring the next stage. 
Given that the Messiah removes our sin and that Jesus brings the resurrection and he brings the judgment and he brings the kingdom and he brings the perfect age to come, he's going to bring a baptism that's packed with way more meaning and power than John's. That's why John says, quote, he is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to remove his sandals. He then says, quote, he himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Let me just stop there for a second. The way he says that, can that be water baptism? Let's say I baptized Ronnie in water. I'm the one baptizing. The substance is water. But here it says he, Jesus, he himself will baptize Ronnie in water. No, in the Holy Spirit and fire. Okay? So this is something that happens spiritually. That Jesus does, but it is pre, it's pictured by what we do in that water, okay? Now, some people get confused by this, right? In the Greek, you know, so some people say there's two baptisms here, a baptism of the Spirit and a baptism of fire. So they'll say the baptism of the Spirit is what's right now. It's for believers. The baptism of fire is what comes when Jesus returns. It's judgment. But actually, the way the Greek is, both the Holy Spirit and the fire refer to the same baptism, It's one baptism. This is what's called a hendiadis, which means both words are talking about the same thing. For those who repent, Jesus immerses them in the Holy Spirit, which fills them with life, power, and holiness. But the Spirit also cleanses them by burning away their sin through sanctification. Okay, we're sanctified through the fire of the Spirit. So the Spirit is the Spirit, but he is like fire. But for those who will not repent, the same Holy Spirit destroys them with the fire of judgment. And what is hell described like in Revelation? A lake. Again, it's a forever baptism. It is an immersion of a different kind. So no matter what, Jesus the Messiah will baptize the whole world with the Holy Spirit and fire. But what it means for the believer and unbeliever is entirely different. When a person repents and believes, the Holy Spirit indwells in them and sanctifies them. Our water baptism then paints an outward picture of this amazing thing that's already happened inside of us. But for the unbelievers, they're going to be immersed forever in the lake of fire. So verse 12 then ends in light of that with a final warning. Which one are you going to be? The believer or the unbeliever? John declares this, of Jesus. He says his winnowing shovel is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with the fire that never goes out. Now this imagery is very striking. When it was harvest time back then, the farmer would take a pitchfork and violently throw the wheat in the air. It's a very forceful throw. Good wheat is heavy right? It's heavy. And so it falls straight to the floor so that you could gather it there. Now, the worthless chaff that you're trying to separate from the wheat, it's light. So when you throw it up in the air, the little breeze is going to blow it away and it's going to land over there, whereas your wheat lands right down um, beneath where where you threw it up, okay? The chaff, if you don't know what chaff is, because I didn't, I'm not a farmer, it's a protective scaly substance that covers the seeds, It's not digestible to us. If you try to eat that stuff, it's going to mess you up. Okay, so it's useless to us. Now, animals could eat it, but we can't. And so pretty much the idea is, because we need to eat wheat, right? So you throw that up there. You separate the good wheat from the useless chaff, the 
forceful tossing in the air separates the two, the useful from the useless. The useful wheat gathered into a barn, the chaff gathered for fire. Okay? Now, what John means is plain as day. Those who repent and believe are gathered into the kingdom forever. That's the barn. Okay? And, and we who repent and believe, we're the wheat. Okay? But those who don't believe, they are burned in the fire. And he makes it clear that he means hell here. Because look how he describes the fire. He says, with the fire that never goes out. Okay? Back then, they had fires that were constantly going in Gehenna that burned trash. And so it became a perfect picture of what the end time judgment would be like. A fire that never goes out. Isaiah, who wrote the longest prophetic book in the Old Testament, when he's ending in chapter 66 with all the good news of what's going to come, his then last thing he says is a warning to those who rebel against God. Isaiah 66, 24. He says, as they leave, they will see the dead bodies of those who've rebelled against me, for their worm will never die, their fire will never go out, and they will be a horror to all humanity. This is not a temporary punishment. It's not. This is a forever punishment, okay? John is saying that time where that is going to come is right around the corner. The kingdom is at hand because the Messiah is at hand. And if that's the case, then the judgment is at hand. So repent while you still can. And of course, we know that the coming of the kingdom is more complex than what John realized. And so we know that there's been a little more time. 2,000 years, okay? Because right now we know that the wheat, as it's being thrown up, it's being gathered from every nation on earth. God is going to keep throwing that, that, that wheat up, okay, in every nation until he's got good wheat from every nation. Once that's done, then it's game over, okay? So what that means is there's a little more time before the final judgment, but listen, we are getting close. Most nations have heard the gospel, and if missionary activity keeps at its pace, the Great Commission will likely be completed in our lifetime. And what's amazing is we're not the only ones doing it. The South Koreans' missionaries are multiplying faster than we are, okay? And so you got Christians from many nations that are expanding their missionaries all over the world. So, like, that means every year when we get up here and we tell you, like, hey, last year's Lottie Moon offering led to this many unreached people groups being reached, this many professions of faith, this many churches being planted, and this many baptisms. That's just what our guys are doing. That doesn't count what the South Koreans are doing, what the Presbyterians are doing. This is happening, and it's escalating at a much more rapid pace. So what I'm telling you is we are getting closer and closer every day. The axe is at the tree. It's at the base of the tree. There is only one more swing to come. So people need to repent they need to repent now. And listen, we believers, we who already believe, we need to bear the fruit of faith and repentance that I already talked about. All those examples of what it looks like for us, we need to be all about that, okay? So let's do so. But most urgently, like John the Baptist, let's tell people of this urgent message. Let's tell people of the judgment to come. John was not lying. The ax is set at the root of the tree. And even before that final swing comes, 150,000 people die Christless every day and enter into a preliminary judgment before the final judgment. Multitudes are dying. Multitudes. We need to plead with them with the urgency and fervor of John. We need to tell them to repent because the kingdom of heaven is near. That is the hard message that many do not want to hear, but it needs to be said nevertheless. 
So talk to them about Jesus. Invite them to church after you've talked to them about Jesus. Invite them to your small groups so that they can hear the gospel from others as well. It doesn't have to only be you. Invite them to barbecues that you might have at your house where you invite not just them, your neighbors or whatever, but your church family as well. And then they can see how we interact and live with each other outside of church. They can look at our love for each other. They can hear the gospel words we speak. And like 1 Corinthians 14 says, they can then declare that God is in this place. Okay, this is our call, loved ones. This is how we do it. So let's not neglect it. You see us as your pastors share the gospel every single Sunday. When you read the Bible, you see how Jesus did it every single time you read it. So just do what you've seen. Listen, I know everybody wants more training because they want to be certain. You've had plenty. And look, in my small group, we're doing training right now. You could come on Thursdays. It's good stuff, but you don't need it. If you've seen and heard us declare the gospel up here, then you know what to say. You know what to do. If you've read Jesus do it, you know what to do. You know what to say. Just do what you've heard. Do what you've seen. Say what you've heard. It's that simple. And then just leave the rest up to God. Okay? God is with you. The Holy Spirit goes before you. So we all need to be about our Father's business. We need to be calling the lost to our Lord. And with that, I end with this. If there are any lost people here, we call you, we summon you, like John the Baptist did to people of his day, to repent and believe right now. Because the fact is, you are a sinner. And the fact is, the axe is at the root of the tree. And a day is coming where it will be too late and you will stand before God guilty of all your sins and you will be immersed in a lake of fire where the torment does not end. And that's what your sins deserve. That's what my sins deserve. But God sent the Messiah, Jesus, on a rescue mission for us. He lived the perfect life we failed to live. Why? So he could give us the credit of that life. He then takes the sins of those who believe and he puts it on himself and that's why he was nailed to the cross to pay our penalty. So if you turn from your sins and you believe on Jesus with all of your heart, then your sins are forgiven because Christ paid your debt for you and you're guaranteed eternal life because Jesus gives you the credit of his righteousness. And all of this is proven by the fact that he rose on the third day and is alive right now. He is coming with that ax and those who don't belong to him will be baptized in the, the lake of fire. But those who repent and believe right now will be baptized in a different kind of fire and have a different relationship with the Holy Spirit and they will experience forgiveness of sins, eternal life. They'll get a forever family. This is what God is calling you to do, to repent and believe. Do not stay in your sins. Now we're gonna pray. And then, you know, the worship team's gonna come up. We're gonna prepare for the Lord's Supper. As I'm praying, you simply just pray to the Lord on your own. God, I'm turning away from my sins. I believe everything I heard in your word today. I'm turning away, I'm turning to you, Jesus. I believe that you're Lord. And then afterwards, come talk to me or any of the leaders and, and we'll, we'll tell you what comes next. Um, but that would be awesome. So as I'm praying now, you could pray between you and God. But for the rest of us, we're gonna pray and then uh, we'll prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper. Lord God, we thank you that you 